I'm going to finish talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness. We went through the holy place last time. We're going to talk about the most holy place. And then we're going to talk about the function of the priests. And the reason we're going to talk about that is we are called many times in the New Testament to be priests. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we'll discuss that. So just a little bit for review from last time. We talked about how where we really want to be is we want to be with God. We want to be at one. We want to come through the veils. We want to dwell in, in God's presence. And that this um, tabernacle is supposed to teach us important things about how we come closer. And we discussed last time how one uh, approach to considering this would be to look at the brazen altar, the golden altar, and the Ark, Ark of the Covenant as, um, let's say, different stages of the human mind in relationship to God. We talked about the, the sacrifice of the lamb, of course, uh, representing Jesus, that the self-sacrificial love, um, everything that was accomplished at the cross, that we become converted at that time as we give our hearts to God. And then we talked about how the priest would then wash his hands. And of course, uh, what happens when you're converted? You're baptized, you're a believer now. And we discussed the, uh, the essential elements of the Christian life, which we see right here in um, the holy place, the, the bread made by the priest, representing the word of God, which is ingested, internalized, becomes a part of you. Uh, the candlestick, again and again, is uh, symbolized as the church. Again, not a specific church, but the body of believers who uh, represent God. Remember how the, the light was to turn, to shine out through the holy place okay, as a witness. And we discussed the golden altar with the incense and how incense, again and again, represents prayer in the Bible. And uh, that we are in this prayerful relationship with God, but we want to discuss now here what is meant by uh, what's in the most holy place. Coming back to the veil. Now, it's interesting. I mean, you don't want to say too many things that uh, are speculative because it can shoot the whole theory down, but I find it interesting that this uh, veil doesn't extend all the way to the top. Okay, is it? So certainly the light from the most holy place would shine out, but not perfectly well because there's a veil in between. So perhaps we're not seeing perfectly clearly here uh, in the holy place. We want to come closer. So the veil separates us. And we finished last time discussing how I think it's really significant that when Jesus died, that that veil between the holy and the most holy place was ripped, opened up. And uh, I think, again, the invitation is, come in. This is what God is like. And so when we have these words here in Hebrews, we have then, my friends, complete freedom to go into the most holy place by means of the death of Jesus. He opened for us a new way, a living way, through the curtain. Notice he is not the curtain. He is the way through the curtain. That is through his own body. And so when Paul would elsewhere say in Hebrews, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace. And I think really if our picture of God is Jesus, we do feel like boldly going in. It's an interesting um, thing to consider. But if you knew in the, maybe an amphitheater or a room next door that, you know, I told you the father is in there or the son is in there, would you have different feelings about going into either room? Would it matter whether we're talking about the Father 
or the Son? Would you want Jesus to go with you if you were going in to see the Father? And I think the life of Jesus is continually telling us, I've come to tell you about the Father, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, is trying to bring us to the realization that the all-powerful God is just like Jesus dying on Calvary. Okay, so what we find in the most holy place, of course, is the Ark of the Covenant. And just like there are three objects there in the holy place, there are three things in the uh, Ark of the Covenant here. First of all, the manna. And um, remember, there's bread that is made by the priests, ingested in the holy place. Um, the manna, of course, is not made by human hands. And Jesus' words here in John 6, troubling words. Remember how the people didn't uh, appreciate these words, but this is how he would talk about the manna. I'm telling you the truth. What Moses gave you was not the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread that God gives is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they asked, give us this bread always. And then he would say, I am the bread of life. Using the illustration of manna, no, I am the real bread of life. I'm telling you the truth. He who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the desert, but they died. But the bread that comes down from heaven is of such a kind that whoever eats it will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. The bread that I will give you is my flesh, which I give. And then he'd go on in this description. And then he would kind of parallel this, but the, the words I have spoken bring God's life-giving spirit. So we are to ingest, as we talked last time, the, the body of Jesus, to internalize everything about Jesus. So one way of looking at this, that the bread of life from heaven is everything about the God event when he lived on earth. God became a flesh and blood human being. We internalize his words, everything he said, uh, the death, which was the climax of his life. That's a part of us. And we might associate then words like this, where Paul would say, we have the mind of Christ. Uh, that's pretty interesting to th consider what that would be like, to have the mind of Christ. But we are to come, he is to become a part of us. Jesus' final prayer is such a wonderful prayer in John 17, where he would tell his disciples, talking to the Father, may they be in us just as you are in me and I am in you. I in them and you in me, so that they may be completely one. So I like to think that the manna here in the Ark of the Covenant represents Christ in us. Hey, of course, the other thing that is um, in there is the Ten Commandments. Okay, why do we have the Ten Commandments in there? Is that supposed to be uh, a meaning for us? And I'll just quote one of these verses. It's repeated so many times in Old and New Testament that the Ten Commandments are to go from stone in the Old Testament, to flesh. They are to become a part of us. I'll read the promise here in Jeremiah. The time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Although I was like a husband to them, they did not keep that covenant. The new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel will be this. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. None of them will have to teach a neighbor to know the Lord, because all will know me. Eternal life is to know God from the least to the greatest. Okay, what does it mean to have the law written on the heart, written on the mind? Both Jesus and Paul would define all law to be 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it really is the law of love that is written on the heart. The law of love that we saw in Moses, willing to lay down his life um, for the Israelites when they were so rebellious. The law of love we saw by Jesus, laying down his life for others. Okay, that that law of self-sacrificial love is written on our hearts. Okay, I like to think that's what the Ten Commandments mean. Now, the other thing that's in the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is Aaron's staff, which had blossomed, okay, signifying that God was with the Levites. They, they were chosen to be his priests. Uh, we're going to talk about the priests here in just a minute, and that is really a story for numbers. So we'll talk about that next time. So, of course, what we have it, then are these three objects here in the Ark of the Covenant, and then we have the lid, okay, three inches thick, solid gold, and then we have the Shekinah glory. Okay, and the lid is defined for us. It represents Jesus. This is uh, probably, I would say, well, maybe the most controversial verse in the New Testament. A lot of debate and discussion about this. I'll read it in the King James, Romans 3.25, where Paul would say, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. That's a difficult verse. But uh, for now, I just want to make the point here that the word propitiation here really is the word for lid, hilasterion. So this is rather interpretive to describe the lid in this way. How do we understand what is happening um, there at the lid? And of course, uh, propitiation, this is a Latin word. Okay, Latin was the Bible for the church for over a thousand years. I heard someone uh, give an illustration once, uh, if you were to ask Paul in the hereafter and say, well, Paul, let's clear it up. What did you mean when you used the word propitiation in Romans 3.25? Of course, Paul would say, I have no idea what you're talking about because the New Testament was written in Greek. This is a translation, a Latin word that is carried all the way down. So it, can we define these words? And do we have to use Latin? Is that the only way? we can really speak theologically. And um, this uh, quote, over 100 years ago, I think um, I, I just like the attitude here. We can use English to understand uh, some of these terms. A little girl once asked me, will you please ask the minister to speak easy words that we can understand? Will you please tell him that we do not understand large words like justification and sanctification? Two more good Latin words, expiation, we do not know what these words mean. The little girl's complaint contains a lesson worthy of consideration by teachers and ministers. Are there not many who would do well to heed the request? Speak easy words that we may know what you mean. Make your explanations clear. For I know there are many who do not understand many of the things said to them. Let the Holy Spirit mold, fashion your speech, cleansing it from all dross. Speak as little children, remembering that there are many well advanced in years who are but little children in understanding. And that's 1902 about propitiation, justification, sanctification, expiation, all the Latin words. Okay? We don't have to be uh, Latin scholars here to understand this. This can be translated into English. And um, I encouraged all of you, I don't know if you remember some time ago, to attend the lectures by Richard B. Hayes when he was here. Uh, Richard B. Hayes is a professor of uh, New Testament at Duke. 
and he has uh, written a book which Christianity Today called one of the 100 most influential Christian books over the last 100 years. Okay, he's, uh, in other words, a, a significant figure. And he was here talking about the Book of Romans, okay, which is uh, his uh, specialty. And um, he's describing this, and uh, then out of the blue, first few minutes of his presentation, he said this about the Book of Romans. Many people have misread the Book of Romans as a book that explains how we can legally get to heaven. This interpretation, however, misses the central question that Paul is answering in this book. And that central question is this, can God be trusted? Now, when I was a kid, I was a big Portland Trailblazer fan. I grew up in Oregon, and I remember fanatically, there weren't many opportunities to cheer for them, but when they did win, you know, it was pretty exciting. And I, I'm sitting in this scholarly lecture just wanting to express somehow exactly right. This is wonderful. Okay, I think the book of Romans really is answering that question. Can God be trusted? Now, what does it have to do with propitiation in Romans 3.25? Well, let's go back and discuss here the lid. Uh, Luther, when he translated this verse, called it Gnadenstuhl, which in English is the mercy seat. What is the lid? Well, let me uh, bring up another translation. You'll notice many of the more modern translations are describing it more this way. Here's the New Jerusalem Bible. God appointed him as a sacrifice for reconciliation through faith by the shedding of his blood. And I think another way of looking at the lid is not to shield us, but rather to bring us. It is to reconcile, to bring together. Okay, and so you find many translations now that are emphasizing more that it is to bring us to at one with God. Okay, we are brought together through Christ, the lid, to become at one with the Shekinah glory. A friend of mine, uh, Tim Jennings, is working on a translation and uh, from a kind of a medical aspect. It's really interesting how he translates this, but uh, here was his uh, interpretation of this. God presented Jesus as the way and means of restoration, again, bringing together through trust. And how about this? Established by the evidence of God's character revealed when Christ died. Okay, now you won't get that from the Greek, okay, but it's, it's in the context. I think this is exactly what Paul is saying here. Okay, so when we consider what was accomplished by the cross, that many things were accomplished at the cross, okay, and, and we'll have to talk about this, but I think if we just consider the evidence about who our God is, laying down his life, is our picture of God this, or as many are discussing here in the events of Haiti, do we have a God who sends earthquakes and floods and all kinds of things? Um, well, it makes a big difference. Okay, and Jesus came to restore our trust in God, and, and uh, ultimately that was done at the cross. So when we look here at the uh, covenant box and the lid, again, I would, maybe we can see another picture here. The marriage analogy is used so often in the Bible that we are to come close. That's how the Bible ends. It's a marriage. Okay, and the death of Christ, the lid, is meant to, to bring us to at one with God. And that word, atonement, is at one one to be brought together as one. Now, the other thing um, here I want to talk about is the priests. So we're priests. There, there are a couple things running in parallel, I think, here in the tabernacle. We're to come through the veils, to be brought together, to at one with God. But we're also, we have a job in this tabernacle as priests. I'll just mention a few of the verses in Revelation. 
He loves us by his sacrificial death. He's freed us from our sins, has made us a kingdom of priests. What does that mean to become a kingdom of priests? You've made them a kingdom of priests. To serve our God, they shall rule on earth. So twice there in Revelation and in elsewhere. What does it mean to be a priest? Well, I have to say, I remember as a child anyway, feeling kind of sorry for the priest. Um, would it be a little boring to walk around in there uh, or descriptions of Jesus walking around in a temple up in heaven? Uh, I, just, I imagine it's not very exciting. Can't uh, go anywhere. What's, uh, I didn't understand. What's really the function of a priest? And so the first slide here. I'm not trying to get into the theology of Tom Cruise here. This is supposed to remind you of Mission Impossible. Um, wouldn't this be a much more exciting job? Get cool gadgets in your watch and shoes and so on. Um, would you rather be a priest or would you rather be a spy? Well, let's talk about what is our function as a priest. And I think if we understand what our mission is, it's actually pretty exciting. And for that, let's go to Malachi, Malachi 1, which opens up with a really interesting words. The Lord says to his people, I have always loved you. And notice the response of the people. They reply, how have you shown your love for us? In other words, hmm, sure doesn't seem like it. God says, I love you. The people say, huh, that's not very evident. And as, as we read on in Malachi, God says, hey, the problem, the reason you have this false attitude about me, let me tell you why. It's the fault of the priests. It is the duty of priests to teach the true knowledge of God. But now you priests have turned away from the right path and you have caused many to stumble over my teachings. So again, the duty of the priest is to teach a true knowledge of God. And as we read on here, the priest taught a false knowledge of God. That's why the people had such a warped understanding. What was the result of priests who teach a false knowledge of God? They have defiled the temple, which the Lord loves. Last time we read all the verses that the temple, what is the temple? Ultimately, it is our hearts and minds individually, collectively. When priests present a false knowledge of God, the temple is defiled. So just one verse to remind you. Paul would say, surely you know you are God's temple, that God's spirit lives in you. His temple is holy. You yourself are his temple. So when a, a false knowledge, understanding of God is accepted, is internalized, the temple is defiled. Okay, I think this has implications. What does it mean to cleanse the temple if that's how the temple is defiled? Well, I want to just give some examples here of first the temple defiled and then the temple cleansed. When did the temple become defiled initially? I'll read the description here of Lucifer when he became Satan in Ezekiel 28. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire, God's very presence. You are blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountains of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. You defiled your sanctuaries. And this word here can be translated sanctuary or holy place with your many sins. Okay, so we have this description here. The fall of Satan defiled his sanctuary here in this process. And so we have this uh, uh, many times. Things are always being cast down. Satan's being cast down. 
and sometimes even it works the other way. We've read this so many times here in Revelation 12 about the war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon who fought with his angels, but the dragon was defeated and he and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. The huge dragon was thrown out, that ancient serpent named the devil or Satan that deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. And I think more than just this describing a, a change of physical address for Satan, uh, I mean, we don't have any evidence of you know, an ongoing defection of angels uh, from one side to the other, uh, but rather I think we could see this as Satan really being cast out of the minds of the loyal angels. Okay, and he was cast down to earth, and of course the description now is he has this rage, and of course we see the, the conflict rage on the earth. So we need to acknowledge, and especially with our current events in Haiti, who's the prince of this world? It sounds wrong to say, but Jesus would describe three times Satan is the prince of this world. And Paul would describe the powers that rule this world. Okay, we like to say God is in control. Okay, but um, we have this problem of freedom. And God allows that freedom to, uh, seems to value that almost more highly than any, anything. And that's why our world's such a mess. And uh, the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus would say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I know we've read this before, but it really would suggest the place God's will is being done now is in heaven. It's not very often being done on the earth. We are to pray that it be done on earth. And the Lord's Prayer ends with, keep us safe from the evil one. So we need to be consciously aware of this cosmic conflict that we're wrapped up in whether we want to or not. So let's describe a couple times now where we have this uh, casting down. First in Daniel 8. Okay, there's a lot to talk about here. I want to just bring out one main point about this little horn. One of the four horns grew... Out, grew a little horn, whose power extended toward the south and the east, toward the promised land. It grew strong enough to attack the army of heaven. Now, uh, is this describing a physical battle? Is Satan strong enough here to physically go and attack the army of heaven? The stars themselves, and it threw some of them to the ground and trampled on them. Okay, this could not be describing a, a war of physical might. It even defied the prince of the heavenly army. Wouldn't that represent Jesus? Stopped the daily sacrifices offered to him and ruined or defiled the temple. People sinned there instead of offering the proper daily sacrifices and true religion was thrown to the ground. The horn was successful in everything it did. I think here we're seeing the exact same meaning of the defiled temple as we read before. Notice the conclusion here. True religion was thrown to the ground or truth. It threw truth to the ground. And the result of this whole thing, where the, it would appear the angels, the army of heaven, the prince of the heavenly army, Jesus, would seem to be defeated in this case. Okay, wouldn't that be describing, again, a false knowledge, a false understanding? The temple is defiled, and all of these things are cast down. And so if the temple is defiled by true religion, thrown to the ground, a true knowledge of God being cast down, we just read on in Daniel to a promise. True religion was thrown to the ground, the temple was defiled, and then a promise. Two angels in conversation. 
And one said, how long will these things that were seen in the vision continue? How long will an awful sin replace the daily sacrifices? How long will the army of heaven and the temple be trampled on? Again, when we read temple, we need to think more of just a physical building. And I heard the other angel answer, answer it will continue for 2,300 evenings and mornings during which sacrifices will not be offered and then the temple will be cleansed or restored. So uh, I promise that there will come a time when the temple will be cleansed. And if the temple is defiled by a false knowledge of God, it would seem that a true knowledge of God is what is going to have the effect of cleansing the temple. Does this mean it happens in one instantaneous moment in time? Uh, or could this be a, a process, that uh, a movement that grows to diffuse a true knowledge about God? Well, there's one example. Remember, we're priests. Another example of this is in Malachi. He'll take his place as a refiner of silver. I think this refers to Jesus as a cleanser of dirty clothes. He'll scrub the Levite priests clean. Again, that's you and I. We'll purify the priests, refine them like gold and silver until they're fit for God, fit to present offerings of righteousness. And of course, Paul would come along to say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, so we are to be purified as priests by Jesus to come to the world with a very specific mission. Okay, let's see if we can spell that out in more detail. Um, I read this last time, but what does the priest do? I mean, they go around, they spread this incense um, throughout the tabernacle. And the application that Paul would make of this incense, I think, is exactly the function of a priest. God uses us to make the knowledge of Christ. Again, true knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ, to spread everywhere like a sweet fragrance. Okay, And this has a very polarizing effect. Look how polarizing Jesus was. Okay, That is, the true knowledge of God goes out. Notice, we are a sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God, which spreads among those who are being saved and those who are being lost. For those who are being lost, it's a deadly stench that kills. But for those who are being saved, it's a fragrance that brings life. But again, what does the splitting? What determines who goes in which direction? The fragrance, the incense, is a knowledge about Christ. Okay, how do we respond to that? Okay, for some, it's a stench. For others, uh, it's wonderful. Okay, again, our job as priests is to spread that in incense, not so much by words from a pulpit. Okay, much more important is how we live our lives, how we treat people. Okay, I'll give you another example of this. Jesus gave his disciples this commission. Go out and preach. Um, tell people about me. And they came back in great joy. Lord, they said, even the demons obeyed us. And when we gave them a command in your name. And Jesus answered, I saw Satan fall like lightning. This is the third verse we've read where Satan fell. Keeps falling and falling and falling. Okay, did he actually physically fall at that moment as the disciples are spreading the good news about Jesus? I, I think it's, it's a meaning again. Satan was defeated okay, as people came to a new understanding, came to see the good news. Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning. And Daniel, who was it who fell? I mean, it was Satan defied the armies of heaven, the prince of heaven. Okay, there was a very dark time in human history that I think that's uh, referring to. Okay, but now we, we see it happening the other way. 
And so these verses, which are often uh, here interpreted very literally, and we look for this in a, in a very um, specific manner, but I think if we are looking at the temple, perhaps in a different way, this verse may have a different meaning. 2 Thessalonians 2. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the final rebellion takes place and the wicked one appears who is destined to hell. He will oppose every so-called God of object or worship and will put himself above them all. He will even go in and sit down in God's temple and claim to be God. So are we waiting for Satan to come and to do something in a building, a temple here on earth? Or if we take all those verses that say, you are the temple, you are the temple, you are the temple, uh, could this have, a, a, I think, a much uh, more serious and sad meaning that if he will even go in and sit down in God's temple, uh, where does Satan want to dwell? Doesn't he ultimately want to dwell in our hearts and minds? And again, we can say the words, I love Jesus, I trust Jesus. Just as the Pharisees 2,000 years ago said, well, we trust God, we love God. And Jesus said to them, you are of your father, the devil, because their picture was so warped and distorted. Okay, so again, it's more than the words we say. Is our picture of God Jesus Christ? Okay, Satan wanting to sit down in the temple, he desires worship. Remember what he did in the wilderness? Ask Jesus to kneel down and worship him. It's unthinkable. Jesus is the creator. Satan's a creature. Okay, he desires worship desires to re reside in our minds. Okay, so our mission, Jesus' mission, I think is best summed up here in John 17, where he would say to the Father, I glorified you on earth by completing down to the last detail what you assigned me to do. Other versions say, I completed your mission. What was his mission? Message Bible is always very clear, but I think in this case it's right on. I spelled out your character in detail to the men and women you gave me. If the mission of Jesus, our high priest, was to reveal the character of God, what does that say about our mission? And we come back to this verse, verse in uh, Malachi. It is the duty of priests to teach the true knowledge of God. Our mission is the same as Jesus. It is to reveal uh, who our God is. And so when I hear of things like, uh, I guess it's the class of 2010, has this big project with Haiti, with hospital over there, I mean, that is revealing God. When you go out and serve and do things like that, that is revealing a true knowledge of God. Not a punisher, but God is a healer. Okay, so uh, words which um, more modern, what, written over 100 years ago or so, but I think is a beautiful explanation. What is our mission as priests? Well, here's the problem, first of all. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. What's that message? His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. And uh, to me, it wouldn't matter who said these words, but uh, it seems perfectly in harmony with the mission of Jesus. Our mission as priests to reveal the character of our God. So we come back here to Mission Impossible, 
And uh, really, when you think about it, would you rather have a cool gadget in your glasses, watch, and shoes? Uh, we have the opportunity as priests, really, to have the living God of the universe dwelling inside as we go about and diffuse this wonderful good news about who our God is. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I just pray, pray for a blessing for each person here just now. Um, please fill each one of us with a true knowledge of you, uh, the abilities to reveal that by the way we treat people, what we say to other people. Help us to be a reflection of Jesus Christ to all those around us. Amen.